looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Thank you, Marlon, for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is no exception. Thanks for bringing it once again. Welcome, everybody. This is episode 51 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. So excited to have you here. Who am I? I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. So excited to be here once again. Week after week, you guys keep coming back. I love it. We've got an amazing show for you today. Last week, we had Robin from Batman and Robin here. And everyone was like, why do you only have heroes? So this week, we have Nan from Superman 1 and 2. That's right. Superhero last week. Supervillain Nan this week. And of course, by that, I mean Jack O'Halloran is here. That's right. Jack O'Halloran, who... Famously starred as Nan, one of the Krypton baddies from Superman 1 and 2. He's here, and we're going to talk about Superman, and he's got some great stories from the set. And also, Jack O'Halloran is the author of the book Family Legacy, where he talks about his father, Albert Anastasia, who was the leader of Murder, Inc. And so there's some great stories there. We dive into... The JFK assassination, Jimmy Hoffa. Jimmy Hoffa, JFK assassination, Superman. This episode has everything. That's right, everything. You're going to love it. This is amazing. And that's coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to thank everyone that joined us for our big 50th episode celebration last week with Burt Ward, Robin from 1960s TV show Batman. That's right. It was super awesome. And we also had a great little party going on in that episode. A lot of cool celebrity voices wishing me a happy 50th. Supplied by my friend Casey Ryan Plot, great voiceover artist. And I wanted to give him a shout out and thank him for all the hard work and amazing voices. It was a ton of fun. Thank you, Casey. It is fun to think we've done 50 episodes. So many great visitors to the show. Ted Neely, Jesus Christ from Jesus Christ Superstar. Art Bell was here telling us how we created Comedy Central. Had an amazing conversation with Jennifer Candy. Talked a lot about her father, John Candy, and the awesome stuff she's doing. Jackie the Joke Man Martling from the Howard Stern Show has visited me twice. Kenny Johnson, creator of The Bionic Woman. And V, the miniseries, was here. Comedians Alonzo Bowden, Mike Young, Dave Landau, Horace H.B. Sanders, Hal Sparks, all amazing, fun conversations. So many funny people. Carl Gottlieb was here. He wrote the script for Jaws. Star Wars expert Dan Zare visited a couple times. My live show, Crossing the Streams, debuted with two episodes on Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. So proud of that. And that then jumping live Wednesdays at 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Check that out as well. Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search out The Jeff DeWaskin Show on YouTube. So many great episodes. Something for everyone. I love doing this podcast so much. You know, I love talking social media, trends popular culture. It's just so awesome to be able to do this, especially since I haven't been able to do stand-up comedy now for quite some time due to the pandemic. But I've found a true love in this podcast, and I'm so excited to have so many listeners and fans. Thank you once again, all of you who share the podcast. Tell all your friends. That's how we grow. So excited. Thank you so much. I also want to thank everyone who participated in our last giveaway with CastBox. So awesome. I hope you are loving the CastBox app and listening maybe right now to this podcast on CastBox. So cool. Giving away some live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show mugs. We do tons of giveaways all the time. Make sure you go to jeffisfunny.com. That's my website. Sign up for my mailing list so that you know any upcoming promotions that we're doing. We love giving stuff away. We love you. All right. Subscribe, like, follow, whatever you need to do. Tell all your friends. That's your homework. Thank you very much. Oh, so quick funny story. So my wife finally listens to an episode of my podcast. 
You're like, wait, Jeff, your wife doesn't listen? What am I doing here? Well, listen, it's a different point of view. She hears my voice 24-7. You have the benefit of only hearing me on demand. The, The opportunity of her to hear me even more isn't as exciting to her as it is to you. If you, if you don't believe me, you start a podcast and <laughs> tell me how much your significant other listens to it, and then we'll have a conversation. So anyway, that's why I love all you guys so much, because you're here with me week after week. So I interviewed Burt Ward about a month before the episode aired, and we talked a lot about care and feeding tips for dogs, because he's done amazing work with dog rescues. He's rescued over 15,000 animals, developed a dog food that extends the lives of dogs, has all these great care and feeding tips. And I told my wife, I said, oh, we got to change all these things. Lola needs us. And she's like, whatever, Jeff, go back to doing your podcast interviews. I'm like, ah. So then uh, flash forward, she finally listens to the 50th episode, mostly, I think, because she was trapped in a car for a very long time and had very little other options. And so she comes home. She's like, Jeff, we've got to change everything for Lola. We got to raise her bowl. We got to change her dog food. We got to feed her differently. And I'm like, I know I told you all this a month ago. She said, I know, but I don't listen to you. I listen to Bert. And I'm like, but we said the same thing. And she just gives me this look, that look that says, it made more sense when Bert said it. And I'm like, oh. Anyway, my point is, if you guys could all go to Twitter and just tweet hashtag listen to Jeff next time to my wife, I would really appreciate it. That would be amazing, actually. The more you know, right? And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, quick tip for you this week, especially since we're all stuck at home for this pandemic. Virtual conferences are amazing. Find one that's relevant to your business, sign up, do it. As it happens, I'm speaking at one coming up mid-May called the PodFest Masterclass. It's an online summit put on by PodFest Multimedia Expo. Check it out. Google it. There'll be a link in the show notes and you can get a free ticket just by using the code DETROIT. That's my free code to give out to all of you guys. So use that and attend lots of amazing sessions to up your game and podcasting and social media in general. You're going to love it. And that's the social media tip. I do want to take a second to thank all of you for supporting the sponsors week after week after week. It means the world to me. They call, they text, they email, they say, Jeff, we're out of stock within an hour of being on your show. You have the best fans in the world. I say, I know, I know. It's incredible. So thank all of you for all of your constant support. When you support the sponsor, you're supporting us. And that's how we keep the lights on. This week's sponsor, Donner Travel Agency, for when you need a super getaway vacation. Donner Travel Agency now has amazing deals for you to spend a week, weekend, or a lifetime in California along its new west coast. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, the new west coast of California located conveniently along the San Andreas Fault. So many amazing options to choose from. Donner Travel Agency is offering amazing deals in Otisburg. That's right, Otisburg. It's a little bitty place located conveniently near Marina Del X, Lexington, and Lex Springs. You'll love Otisburg and the beautiful beaches, the amazing ocean views. What more could anyone ask? Otisburg. Contact Donner Travel Agency today for more details on how you can have the getaway of your dreams. All right. Well, that sounds amazing. I got to say, I can't wait to get out of the house and travel again and see an ocean and hang out at the beach with the family and friends. So check that out. Google them. They're all over the place. You won't regret it. You know what else you won't regret? Listening to my conversation with Jack O'Halloran. That's right, Jack O'Halloran. We talk a lot about his amazing book, Family Legacy. And of course, we talk a lot about Superman 1 and 2, where Jack O'Halloran starred as Non, the Kryptonian bad guy, alongside General Zod and Ursa. So buckle up and get ready for my conversation with Jack O'Halloran. All right, I got a special guest with me today, actor, professional boxer, author, Jack O'Halloran. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. I'm doing the best I can, whatever will let me get away from. Thanks a lot. Hey, no problem. Glad to have you here. You're an icon, super villain icon, non. <laughs> I'm Superman, the original Superman, the best Superman, one and two. Yeah, one and two were the best they did. But your path to become non started as a boxer, right? You were. I first played football, then I went from football to boxing, and then from boxing into the movie business. And they tried to get me into the movie business when I was early in the fighting. I was in 1966, 67. 
Steve McQueen was in Boston doing the Thomas Crown Affair. And we looked after him and he and I became very good friends. And he tried to talk me into coming down to the set. He said, you got to come in. I'll put you in the movie. We'll get your SAG worked out. He said, you got to come back to Hollywood. We'll have a great time, man. And I said, I don't think so. I'm not ready for that. And then in 1969, I knocked out a guy, Emmanuel Ramos in L.A., who was number two in the world, looking to get an Ali fight. And they wanted me to do The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones, which was the biggest movie going out there. I turned that down. And uh, then in 76, when I retired, 75, from boxing, they came to me to do Farewell, My Lovely with Robert Mitchum. And I went and did a screen test. And Mitchum said, it's either him or I don't do the movie. So I blame it all on Robert Mitchum. Well, I will thank Robert Mitchum while you're blaming. <laughs> and you became close with Robert. Robert, and I, yeah, he became like a father. He was great. Robert was terrific. So once you were you were hooked, and then shortly after you did King Kong, but you were not King Kong. You're a big no. guy, but you were not no. King Kong. <laughs> no, we did Farewell, My Lovely, which turned out very well. And then we did King Kong, and then I did a film, March or Die. And when I was getting ready to go do March or Die, they came to me to please do the Jaws part in in the Bond movie. And I turned that down and I went to finish March or Die. And then from March or Die, we went right to Superman. So Richard Keel must have thanked you for that. There. Well, I, I turned down the next, no, six films that was his career. I turned six movies down that he did. It worked out pretty well for him. And so it was good. It's good. Do you, He's a nice do you, guy. He was a nice guy. Do you do you regret not being in a Bond film? That would have been that would have been cool. <laughs> I mean, you did plenty of cool well, stuff. Well, they wanted but... me to play the part of Jaws, and uh, right. I was uh, I really didn't like the script. Mitchum said to me, "Do you like the role?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, then forget about it. Well, you're going down to Spain to do a movie. Go down and do that." So I went and did March or Die with Gene Hackman and Catherine Deneuve and Max von Sydow and, and a host of people. Ian Holm. It's a great cast. The kid named Terrence Hill, who was a big Italian star. So Fun. from that, we went to had the same crew that worked on Superman. When Donner flew Hackman and I up to London to talk about doing Superman. We discussed the role. He was a little concerned. He said, how do you feel about playing a, a deaf, dumb mute? And I said, I, I embraced the idea. You know, Jackie Gleason was a friend of mine, and, and he won an Oscar playing a, a role called Gigo, the movie Gigo, and he was a deaf, dumb mute. And I said, if I ever get that opportunity to play a role like that where you have to really use your ability as an actor, I would embrace it. And Superman was a great role for that because he had Terrence Stamp was a vicious general. Sarah was a man-eater. And somebody had to relate to the kids. So I took this big brutish guy and I played him like a child. We're learning how to work his eyes and, you know, it worked out pretty well. Yes, it did. Was it your idea or was it in the script that he be mute? Well, they talked about it because the character in itself, Nan, was a brilliant scientist in the comic book. They lobotomized him. So they asked me if, how I felt about that. And I said, I'd love the idea of doing it mute. I love that idea. And they said, wow, really? I said, yeah, because they thought I would turn it down because of that. And I said, no, no, that I want to do that. It gave me an opportunity to show expression and to create a real presence. And it worked very well. You did. I, Cause I got to admit, I hadn't seen the film in a long time and I went back and I'm, and I was like, I had forgotten. He didn't talk. Funny, the funny part is, you know, I, I remember the first Comic-Con I ever did and people walked up to me and they said, my God, you can actually talk. <laughs> <laughs> that was Superman one and two were one of the, the first movies that I'm aware of that they filmed them. They filmed them both at the same time, or they were attempting to. Well, they filmed. We filmed them both together, and we broke a lot of technology rules. We actually did things that we didn't use CGI. We shot what they call Vista Vision on Vista Vision, which is what this new technology with LED lighting and all that they're doing now. But it was much more primitive then, so it took a long time to do it. They had a, a huge 70-foot screen. And three pole arms came out of it, and there was a body mold at the end, and we laid in the mold, and they dressed us. And we were like 70 feet up off the air, you know? And they shot us into the film. So we had the movement so we could fly. You know, we were flying under bridges and around buildings, and we could do the movements. It looked fantastic. It worked out extremely well, boy. Where the people said, how do you, how'd you get under bridges and all? You didn't use CGI and no wires. It was the way we it was the shot. Vista Vision on Vista Vision. And it really worked, worked terrific. 
Richard Donner was a great director. Oh my God, he was the best. Very sad that they, they, it was the worst mistake they made not allowing him to finish two because he would have done three, four, five, and six. It would have been a whole different franchise altogether. So what was it that they didn't invite him back? They just decided to go. Did something happen? They didn't want to pay him. Oh, that was it. It was just a money. It was just a money thing. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you cut Marlon Brando out of a movie? You don't. I mean, they they had already paid Brando. The footage was already done. So they cut him out because they didn't want to pay him the points. He had points in the movie and they didn't want to pay him. So they cut Brando out. Have you ever seen the Donner cut? I've seen it. It's been a while, but yeah. Oh, the Donner cut's much better. It's interesting because they use some of his move from two to finish one, right? I mean, that him spinning around, the, flying around the world was supposed to be in two. Uh, we had like, uh, you know, the, we had shot 85% of two. When they brought Mr. Le- Richard Lester on to put his name on the film as a director, you have to shoot more than 50% of the movie. So he went back and reshot some stuff, but they kept the footage. And that's why they had the footage to do the Donner cut. But then Donner had to doctor up the, the ending. The beginning and the ending, I think it was, which was sad because had he been able to shoot it the way he wanted to, it would have been a much different franchise. Yeah, it's funny because they're doing they're dealing with that now with the Justice League and stuff. Well, we did shots like we when we were in the Fortress of Solitude and we were being locked up when we lost our power and stuff. And they, we actually had shots when we when I fell into that abyss. Like they actually have a shot of us coming out of there and being put into police vans and taken away. We were in. We got locked up you know, because we lost our power when that whole thing went on in that little vehicle that Christopher did a reverse deal on. Right, right. He tricks Lex Luthor, and they, they had a good ending for it, and never got a chance to use it. They showed it in the television version of the extra of the over footage that was around. It's just a shame that it could have been better. Donner was like Donner's like night and day with Lester. He put too much comedy. And if you look, if you if you go back and watch. The Lester cut at the Eiffel Tower when we're in Paris. They actually went over there as Howdy Doody or something. The movie said to me it was ridiculous. And it was raining something terrible. And the car behind where Vargo's talking to the cop, and you see spots hitting the cop's shirt. And if you look at the car behind him, the windshield wipers are going bam, 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 bam. Because it was raining so hard. But Lester, all he did was he shot it, opened up the lens, and then he went into in the lavatory and made it look like it wasn't raining at all just to save money. I mean, it was the dumbest thing. I couldn't believe that they did that. It was just so foolish. Why not just stay there a day or two to get the shot in the sunshine properly, you know? Right. Yeah. And three, three, well, even with three was diabolical. Four was a Canon picture. It wasn't even a, a Warner brother picture. They sold the right of a film to Canon. You know, it was just diabolical what they did. They got away with it. Right. I don't even know if I ever saw Four. I think Gene Hackman came back for a four. <laughs> you, you didn't miss anything. The only thing that I remember for, for sure coming out of Superman 3 was uh, Richard Pryor's character stealing the, the fractions of the pennies and then them later using that joke in Office Space. <laughs> using as that as the plot for Office Space to, to rob that. It's, just, it's really sad that, you know, th- th- there'll never be another Christopher Reeve. And they had an opportunity to, and, and, and I blame Christopher as much as anybody, because all Christopher had to do was say, no Donner, no me. And they would have dropped dead. They would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. But they had him on the Star Trip. It was the first big film he ever did. And it became a star from it. So they talked him into an ego trip because he should have turned around and said, you don't have Richard Donner. I'm not coming back. And they would have had no choice. I agree with you. It, it's had to have been hard for him, though, being his like very, you know, his first movie to like try and pull that kind of muscle. Well, you know, it was sad that he was so ill-advised. I mean, his agent should have known better because with Donner, they would, like I said, they would have done. Donner still does the comic books. I mean, these he and Mankiewicz were so much into Superman. It would have been follow-up would have been so much better. It would have just it would have been a much different franchise. Greedy as the salt kinds were, I'm amazed they didn't figure that out themselves. He took the money and ran. Did you have a good relationship with Christopher Reeve? I heard a story. There was some kerfuffle. Everybody blows that out of proportion. I mean, my God, you work with people for three years as closely as we worked. And if you don't have an argument with somebody somewhere along a line, something very wrong. Christopher was very naive when he did Superman. He was, he was, he was learning. He was a young guy. 
And there was an Italian restaurant in, in London called uh, San Lorenzo. Dear friends of mine owned it. And, and I promoted it to everybody because the food was so good. And so everybody used to go in there and eat dinner. And uh, it was down the street from where I stayed in London. I used to eat dinner every night. And Christopher was in there with Hackman and a bunch of people. And he was talking about myself, about my father from New York and organized crime. And, and he's talking about a lot of things he shouldn't have been talking about. And the owner of the restaurant called me on the phone and he said, how well do you know this Christopher Reeve kid? And I said, well, we're just working together. Why? He said, well, he's talking about things I don't think he should talk about. So the next morning, I grabbed Christopher when we came to work. We went into a room. We had a very serious conversation. And I thought we had an understanding. And, and then we went out into the hallway where all these people are. And all of a sudden, he, I think he thought he was Superman. He started, you can't talk to me that way and all this other bullshit. And I said, what did you say? And I grabbed him. I threw him against the wall. And I was just, I was just getting ready to really smack him. And Richard Donner whispered in my ear, not in the face, Jack, not in the face. So we all broke up laughing. And I dropped him on the floor. I said, you know, you're a lucky kid. And I walked away. And that was the end of it. Never was carried over anymore or anything of that nature. And, and every time somebody somebody's told that story to somebody and they asked, and I told them just what I'm telling you, I got blown totally out of proportion. Oh, you had a terrible argument with Christopher Reeve. was going to kill him. And oh, my God. Well, hey, this was pre-internet. People had to glob to something, right? <laughs> <laughs> the media are a joke, man. It's fun. What about Margot Kidder? What was she like? Margot was brilliant. She's just a sweetheart. Margot was a... She's just, she's a very fine actress and she was just a sweetheart. We had a great cast. I mean, when you stop and think, if you're working with people for three years and you're as close as we were, all of us, God, you, you're talking about Brando, Terrence Stamp, one of the finest English actors that there ever was, Sarah Douglas, who became a very stalwart actress over there. And if you look at all the people that were on the set uh, of the first movie, when they put us up in the space thing, the judges there, I mean, you had Trevor Howard, you had, you had a whole bunch of really serious English actors that were playing parts there. It was just a great cast. Do you have any good Brando stories? Brando and I were very close. Marlon was, I went down on the set one day. He was doing a shot and I just went down to watch him work because he's such a brilliant actor. He had cue cards everywhere, everywhere. Something went wrong with the camera and the camera guy said, oh, we're going to have to come back and do this later. Marlon said, the hell with it. I'm going to turn around, you fix that camera and I'll turn back into the shot. Well, I never saw anybody ever do that before. He did it and he came, turned around into the shot and bam, banged it out. And he came back off the set and I said to him, wow, man, I said, you know, I guess a lot of people would be a little nervous asking this, but what the hell? I said, what's with the cue cards? Are you that bored with the industry that you have to have cue cards everywhere? He said, oh, no, Jack. He said, I, I started that on uh, Mutiny and the Bounty and, uh, and I, I just didn't want the camera to think that I sat up all night studying a script. I wanted to make it look like the words were just coming out of the air. And I said, I looked at him, I laughed. And, and he knew that it was full of shit. And, and he was a great Shakespearean actor. So he ripped off a couple parables of Shakespeare. And he said to me, that you must know word for word. This stuff, piece of cake. <laughs> Marlon was a fun guy. He was a prankster. He liked practical jokes. That's cool. And then you'd worked with Gene Hackman, you mentioned. And then this was your second movie with him. Hackman was a good guy. I did a picture right before with him called March or Die. Gene's a brilliant actor. He's a methodical actor. There were so many great actors involved. And Jackie Cooper, I mean, uh, a lot of stalwarts, boy. A lot of European actors that were heavyweights. And we had a good time. It was good. It was. It was quite a powerhouse. It was, it's, there's still, one and two still are two of the best superhero movies. Oh, even today, I don't think they've made anything better than them. Any, I don't think there's any movie technically better than that. either one of those films. They were really stand-up films. You could be a child today and go into a theater for the first time and see that movie and walk out, oh my God, what's that kind of impression on you? And the beauty of it was they did it the way Superman was constructed in America. And you got to understand it. Superman was the first American superhero. And he did it in that all-American way. He didn't kill anybody. He wasn't killing people. They were locking people up. It was just a much more sane approach. Yeah. In the new Man of Steel movie, him and Zod, they destroy half the city. They must kill tens of thousands of people. <laughs> that, that takes away what the whole premise of Superman was, you know? And so we're trying to put together a deal for Warner Brothers. So we're trying to get some people to, to look at the factor of bringing Christopher back with this hologram technology, which can be done very simply. 
and bringing the three villains back. And we have an amazing storyline. Hopefully they'll buy it and we'll be able to put it off because it'll be the fan base will go crazy. Over. I was I was going to ask you about that, actually. I was reading about that. How close are you to being able to do that? Is there a full script? We we have a full idea of, and the script will be easy to do. You know, the premise is real solid and it really is quite very clever. It brings the villains back and, and the villains become partners with Superman to fight all these people that Marvel Comics, everybody's bringing all these people from different planets into Earth. And now Superman's got his own little crew together to have superpowers like he does. So it'd be really kind of interesting. And there's a whole reason why and where that, how that happens. And, and it's all ties right into the original. So it's very, yeah, it'd be very cleverly done if they would allow it to be done. I hope that happens. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it would open the door up for a whole new franchise of nonviolent Superman. It would be there's a way of doing it, of taking it back the way we did one and two. So what I think would be a lot better. People were getting so much into this violent stuff. Who's killing who and what? And it's getting a little crazy. Yeah, they got they got a little dark. Oh, did they? They get darker and darker all the time. It'll be fun to see you and Christopher together again. <laughs> oh, it'd be, I mean, can you imagine the fan base seeing Christopher Reeve come back? Wow. Is there is uh, Christopher Reeve's family? Do you have to get their permission, or how does that even work? Oh, I think that would be no problem at all. That I don't I don't see that as any problem. Uh, having Hackman's family, no, I don't see any of it a problem. Why would you want to? You you wouldn't turn down the notoriety of of it, and you wouldn't turn down the money from it. So true, true, true. Why would you? Why would it be a problem? You know. And I am sure that they would rather see a Christopher Superman than the dark Supermans that they're seeing. That's a direction. The guy who plays Superman now, he's he's actually kind of, he could play a light Superman. They just, that's a choice. That is a choice. That, well, Henry, uh, Con- Henry Henry's, Henry's a, has a good look. Yeah. Richard Donner got a performance out of Christopher and Chris listened to him. It's going to be very hard to find somebody who transformed from Superman to Clark Kent the way Christopher did. He just did it so well. Yeah, totally. It's, it's an he interesting had a great balance. look. You know, he had the look down and he didn't push any. It wasn't, in other words, you didn't catch him acting. You know what I mean? He was like very, very realistic. He did it. Donner got a great performance out of it. I give that to Donner. Donner and Mankiewicz both talked to him until he was blue in the face. They did good. Donner puts out tons of great stuff. So he's definitely he's got a great the director. Touch. Richard's got- a great director. So is there any other Superman story you've never told that you could think of? They would be like, oh, this was cool. Or you want to talk about something else? We could talk about something else. (laughs) There were so many stories on Superman with Valerie Perrine. And oh, my God, there were funny things that happened every day. It was such a joy to work on that movie. It was just, you know, Valerie was a trip. Valerie was a beautiful woman. My God, she played the role to the tips really well. She did. It was a great film for Valerie. Yeah, she was great. Helped her career tremendously, and she and she's such a super lady. She's not very healthy today, but God bless her. She's been around the block a long time. Have you ever seen Dragnet? Have you seen Dragnet? Oh, I've seen Dragnet. What was it like working with oh, Danny Aykroyd and Tom Hanks? Danny Aykroyd. You could watch Dragnet a hundred times, and you still would not get all the one-liners that Danny threw out in that movie. He had that earplug in his ear, and it was Jack Webb kept talking in his ears. I mean, he had it down so cool. And Tom Hanks was a breakout movie for Hanks. Tom's a treasure to work with. But again, it was a great cast, and it worked out very well. We had a good yeah. time doing it. We ruined it. It must have been a blast. <laughs> it, was. No, it was a lot of fun. Dan, I mean, no one's better than Dan Aykroyd. No one's better than Tom Hanks. I mean, those the two of them. <laughs> like, no, it was br- And they worked so well together. It really came together really well. And Harry Morgan, there's a guy who was suffering from Alzheimer's disease. Terrible. But he still come up with a great performance. I mean, we were doing a, a shot at the, we were in the, the restaurant when they out the preacher, Christopher Plummer, as being the villain. And Harry, the scene where you see him outside, where he was talking, we lost him. He wandered off. They couldn't find him. He took a walkabout, man, for the Alzheimer's disease. He forgot where he was. Oh, poor Harry. God bless him. Boy. But he still finished the movie. That's a what a trooper. Seriously, what a trooper. It was a fun movie to do. It was good entertainment. And I did a, I did a picture that I, I really liked, and it's sad that it, they never had the money to promote it properly. The Baltimore Bullet was a good picture with Omar Sharif, Jimmy Coburn, and uh, it was Bruce Boxleitner's first movie. Uh, God, we had a ball doing that. We shot. We actually shot the nine-ball tournament at MGM that year, and we had every pool hustler in America was in the movie. Moscone, everybody. That was a fun movie to do. Omar Sharif is a brilliant guy to work with. 
very lucky in my career. I worked with some really superb actors. Yeah, you worked with some real heavy hitters. Robert Mitchum, Brando, Sharif. Farewell, my lovely. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but if you haven't, you should go out of your way. It's a, it's a very good movie. I'm going to. Again, with another great cast. You know, John Ireland's in it, Charlotte Rampling, and uh, Harry Dean Stanton, Anthony Zervi. We talk about some key actors. Speaking of key actors, what was it like working with David Hasselhoff on Knight Rider? (laughs) (laughs) David was a nice kid. He really was. He was into his music. Knight Rider was a good show for him. Love Knight Rider. I don't think he did much else other than... He had a little Baywatch going there. A little Baywatch, yeah. Baywatch worked for a while. And then... uh, Knight Rider was a good series for him. And then, of course, he had a a starring role... In Sharknado, one of the Sharknado movies. So that was, <laughs> I, I love the Hoff. I didn't like television too much. I did it because people asked me to do a favor for them. And I was always working. I was always doing films. And at one time I was supposed to do a Lindsay Wagner's uh, show, The Bionic Woman. Well, I went over to Universal to see the director. And when they called my agent, my agent said, you, you realize that he does not read for people. You either wanted to do it or, or you know, he's not going to come in there and read. And they said, oh, no, we just want to meet him and all that stuff. So I went over and sat down with these guys at Universal. And the guy gave me a script. And I, you know, I had my hand. And the director came in and he said, geez, would you read this for me? And I, so I read it like a magazine article. And he said, no, no. He said, would you read it for me? And I said, let me ask you a question. I said, I'm sitting here because you evidently like something that I did. He said, oh, we loved your film. My God, Farewell, I love it. It was brilliant. This, that. And I said, uh, well, if you know what I can do on screen, if you're asking me, do I like this part and do, would I do it well? I'll tell you that I will do it better than anybody in this town. But I'm not a monkey that you hold up a treat and I perform. If you want me to do this, bingo, let's get on with it. And, and I'd be loved to do it. I like Win- Lindsay a lot. And I think you should have a great show. And, you know, when you make up your mind, give me a call. And I got up and left. The guy couldn't believe I left. He called my agent and said, he walked out. And Meyer said, I told you he doesn't read for people. So why would you put him under that kind of, well, well, you know, we, we, uh, so televisions, they take their time choosing people to do different parts on guest shots. And they waited until the last minute. And then they called, he called my agent on the phone and they said, okay, we're ready to have Jack come over for wardrobe and, in fact, we wanted to do, and it was a double part. It was like two shows. Meyer said, he's not around. The guy said, what do you mean he's not around? He said, he's off to London to do a film. And the guy said, well, how long is he going to be gone? He said, oh, probably a couple of years. They're doing Superman over there. So Lindsay was furious because I told her, I said, if the guy would have called us right away, I would have made time to, I would have done the show for you before I went to London. We went over and got prepared to do Superman. And I said, but I would have squeezed it in for you because I liked her. And she was so arrogant. Oh, my God, was she mad. Television is like that. They wait. That's one of the reasons I don't like it. They wait till the last minute. Then they make it like you're doing them such a favor. Sounds like you don't need them, Jack. So (laughs) in one of the articles I read about you, you believe that Sylvester Stallone based Rocky on you. I know he did. We were doing Farewell, My Lovely. And um, he came out with Joe Spinell who was in Farewell, My Lovely, and he was in Rocky. Joe Spinell was a funny guy. He, he, had, he had a crew of actors that when a picture needed to fill parts up, like little parts, he would bring them into, into California, all of them. And that's what he did with, with Farewell, My Lovely. He brought Stallone. He brought Jeff, Jimmy Archer's brother, Fighter's brother, came out. Jimmy Archer was there. There was there were about four or five of them. And Stallone was getting ready to do this boxing picture. So he sat down with me every day, picking my brain. He'd never really been to Philadelphia. Described Philly, the waterfront. I was involved in organized crime and I was a gangster fighter. My career was, I would fight every three days or whatever. You know, He listened to me intently. And he says he did, part of it was the bleeder, Chuck Wepner from Newark. But Chuck was never from Philadelphia. And the gym that I worked out in, he made it the same way inside, although it was actually down in South Philly. He put it up in North Philly just to change a couple things around. But how the gym, when you walked in the door and had to go up all the steps and everything was exactly how it was on the third floor that we used to walk up every day to go to the gym. He lived in South Philly, but he put the gym in North Philly, which is ridiculous. He did things to try to avert whatever, make it look like, you know, and I was signed to fight Ali four times. And he just ate up every story I told him. He'd come down every day. He'd drive me crazy. He'd sit down. Oh, tell me about this. Tell me about that. Tell me about this. And 
and the whole waterfront of him collecting money. I told him all about how that gangster shit worked down there in Philadelphia and stuff. But that's fine. Did you ever see him after? He called me up to do a part in one of the Rocky movies, I don't know, it was two or three. And I went over to MGM and saw him. He had a, a platform under his desk, so he looked like he was taller. And I remember when I walked in and saw him, I said, you got lifts on or something in your shoes, man? <laughs> Trying to give the appearance that he was much taller. He's a good kid. He, God bless him, worked out good for him. But he didn't come from where he makes people believe he came from the streets and everything. And his mother was married to a serious wise guy. He was educated. He went to, to Switzerland to school and stuff like that. But he had like a twitch palsy in his face, which gave him that smirky look. I mean, you know, he did a great job with, with Rocky and it worked out well. And God bless him. God bless him. I think Webner, Webner sued him and I think Webner got paid, got some money out of him. Oh, really? Meaning that he used his life. <laughs> you know who did fight Ali in the comic books? Superman. <laughs> so maybe that was... Maybe they were in the back of your head. You knew that. And that's why you were mad at Christopher that one time. No, I was kidding. Uh, Superman got to fight him, but I didn't. <laughs> I never knew that. I didn't, he actually, they actually had a comic book out with him fighting Ali. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you, a, I'll send you a, a link to it. I'll find it. I never it. knew that. Never yeah. Knew that. First time I ever heard that. Ali was a great guy. I liked Ali a lot. He and I had a lot of laughs. In fact, when I was, uh, when I beat the kid in Detroit, Blue Lewis, I went up to his camp in Pennsylvania, Deer Lake, to see him. You know, all the reporters were up there and stuff. And we went into a, into a room, a locker room, and shut the door. And we were laughing like we were kicking the door, punching the door like we were having this big scuffle in the room. Everybody thought we were in there beating the hell out of each other. <laughs> He's laughing and he said, watch out, watch the reaction on these guys, Jack. And we opened the door and they all had their ears like the, thinking they were going to see the spectacular spectacle or something. <laughs> and he said to me, he said, we sat down to eat dinner, and he said, Jack, he said, if I give you a title fight, will you really try and beat me? And I said, I'll tell you what, son. For the very first time in my career, I will go away to camp like you do. And uh, when you come in that ring, you better bring a gun with you because you're in trouble. And he said, two steaks, please. <laughs> <laughs> he was a fun guy. Ali was a great athlete. He'd have been great at any sport he ever did. Very cool. But you also, you did fight George Foreman, who later went on to make some amazing yeah, grills. Foreman, uh, <laughs> Foreman fight I, I took on a, like, uh, seven-day notice. I had beat Manuel Ramos in L.A., then no one would fight me anymore. I just, I'd been to Africa, I came back from Africa, and I, and I beat Ramos, and uh, nobody, it happened to me twice. I was um, in New Jersey one time, and they called me up to go down and fight a kid named Terry Daniels in uh, Houston, Texas. He was ranked like fourth or fifth in the world. And they were looking for a white guy to fight Frazier for the title in Houston. He called Lou Vescuzzi, called me, he said, you want to fight Terry Daniels in Houston? I said, sure, positively, send me a ticket. And I got off the plane and he said, my God, you're in shape. I said, well, aren't you supposed to be in shape when you come to a fight, man? What's the deal? And I destroyed Terry Daniels. In the third round, they stopped the fight. They should have stopped in the first round, but they, I destroyed him. I went right to him and just took care of business. So I was flying back to Philly on a plane with Yank Dorham, who's Frazier's manager. And he said, you want to fight Frazier in Houston? I said, come on, man. He said, you beat one more good fighter and you can have the Frazier fight. I said, I'll tell you what, I'll do you one better. You name the place, the time, and the fighter, send me a ticket. I'll be there. He said, you serious? I said, you name the fighter, place, and the time. Send me a ticket. I'll be there. They called me up two weeks later and they said, Go fight Cleveland Williams in Houston, Texas. Cleveland was a ranked fighter, very tough guy. And that was his hometown. So I went to Houston and I stayed in pretty good shape, boy. Thank God I did. And I went down to Houston and I beat him 10 out of 10. Terry Daniels got the Frazier fight and Cleveland fought George Savallo on the same card. And nobody would fight me again. They were all ran the other way. Every time I got in shape, people just ran the other way. I, well, I'm not getting in the ring with you either, Jack. You, you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. I'll tell you a really funny story. I, I was in Boston, and I had a lot of, like, smoker fights up there as well that aren't even on my right. I had, like, 25 knockouts, different fights. That they would hold these fights in uh, different arenas and stuff. They were little shows that this promoter, Sam Silverman, had them all over the place. Every week, they had one or two fights somewhere. And they called me on the phone. And they said, are you coming to the fight tonight? And I said, yeah, man. He says, bring your gear, bring your gear. And I said, what? What are you talking about? Bring your gear with you, your shoes and cup and stuff. I said, okay. So I got to the fight. He said, listen, we're really short about you fight this guy. 
And I said, well, you got to, my management said, yeah, man, we do, we will, you use a different name. So I fought under different names all over the place. And I was fighting this guy down at the track and down in the, outside of Boston. He used to run a show down there. So I'm fighting this guy and the guy comes out of the dressing room and he saw who was in the ring. <laughs> he refused to, he refused to get in the ring. I'm not getting in the ring with that guy. You got <laughs> you people crazy. You didn't tell me who I was fighting because they gave him some name, fictitious name. And the guy said, no way am I. He, you said I was fighting John Smith and I'm staring <laughs> at Jack O'Hale. <laughs> There's no way I'm getting in the ring with that. I left. Oh man, that is funny. I want to talk about your book, Family Legacy. Family Legacy, there's a site, familylegacythenovel.com. The book Family Legacy is about my father. My father was a famous guy called Albert Anastasia. He was the head of Murder, Inc. And he was the Gambino family. He was the Anastasia family before he died in 57. And they turned it into the Gambino family. Because Carlo Gambino was his underboss. So I, I wrote a book. It tells about... In the beginning, when, when everybody came in from Italy and everything, and they put their things together, the partnerships in the country were between the government, industry, unions, and organized crime were all partners. They all watched each other's back because the money that they made, and there was no drug business, and they weren't in the drug business. They were in gambling and extortion and loan sharking. So you had to have money to pay them, so they created jobs. So they put a lot of money back into the infrastructure of the country. It created a lot of jobs with the unions. My father ran the waterfront and a lot of people went to work. Everybody made money. It was a different scenario altogether. Nobody ever talks about that. They always talk about the mafia, organized crime, blah, blah, blah. So I, t- I wrote the book about my father's death in 57. And, and I end the book with Kennedy's death in 62. And, and I tell the truth about it. What happened to Jack Kennedy? Why he died? And who died? And who did what? And it's a, it's a very good read. You'll, you'll like it. Can you share any Kennedy tidbits with us? <laughs> How do you know firsthand? I was there. I was in Dallas. I was there the night before. I was at the, what they called. Clint Murchison Jr. had a party at his house. And it was called Egyptian Nights. It was a tribute to Hoover. Meyer Lansky arranged for me to go to this party because I went there on the premise that I was going to play football for the Dallas Cowboys. And Murchison Jr. owned the Dallas Cowboys. So I was being introduced to him, and, and it was to go and see all the people who were there. And I saw Johnson, I saw everybody, and I listened to a lot of things that were going on. And, and I met a guy named McCoy, who was the banker in America. The next day, the I, I saw I was out running in the morning, and I and I was and uh, Johnny Roselli was running in the same park. What the hell are you doing? He said, Dad, you got to leave town. He said, you shouldn't be. You need to get out of town. And I was arranging to do that anyway. But uh, you have to ask yourself a couple questions. Who was the one person that was responsible for Jack Kennedy's death? And if you really sat down and looked at it, it was his father. Because his father made so many enemies of people. And his father would have rather seen Jack die the way he died than him die of a disease. And Jack Kennedy was not going to live out his term. He was extremely ill. Suffered from Addison's disease very bad, which was the deterioration of the spinal cord. He had syphilis. He had four diseases. And they used to shoot him up every day just so he could walk around. And, he, and I like Jack. Jack was a hell of a guy. He was a hell of a politician. Four people went to see his brother, who was the top cop in the country at the time. He was the attorney general. And four people, including Adlai Stevenson, went to see him to tell him, do not let your brother go to Dallas. The animosity is horrendous. And there were so many different entities that were provoked into a situation. You had the Bay of Pigs that happened, which a lot of kids got innocently killed. That was because of Joe Kennedy. And you had the oil people of Dallas, of of Texas, period. Uh, When Jack was running for nomination, H.L. Hunt went out to L.A., gave a suitcase full of money to Jack Kennedy, to Joe Kennedy, for Johnson to run as vice president. And you had the Teamsters that uh, they were harassing Hoffa, something terrible. Bobby Kennedy was. And the reason was because when his, when Jack was running for president in the beginning, it went to Joe Kennedy was controlled by Chicago. So you got to go all the way back to Prohibition to understand that story, why he was controlled all those years by Chicago. And he went to Giancana in Chicago and he said, I promise you both my son's ears if you help us get elected. And Meyer Lansky and people in New York said, what do we need Joe Kennedy, Jack Kennedy for? 
we have Nixon. He's already in our pocket. What do we need the other guy? Gene kind of convinced them that this was a good play, blah, blah, blah. So when he was getting nominated, Joe Kennedy told uh, Gene Connor, oh, got all the electoral votes are all sewed up, no problem. We got the election in the bag. Well, after the first one and a half days that they were in L.A., he called up and he said, we got a problem. We don't have as many electoral votes as we thought. For the very first time, Chicago went Democrat and two other states around it went Democrat. And after the third day, he called again and he said, well, we're still short and uh, there's only one state that can put us across the line, uh, the state of West Virginia. And because of the mining, it was such a little state, but they had a tremendous amount of electoral vote because of the money that was down there in mining and everything, coal and all that stuff. So Gene Connor made a couple phone calls to Bobby, to the Cellini family and who owned some casinos in West Virginia. And some debt was excused and West Virginia raised their hand and he got nominated. And when he was running for president, if you, you're a little young, I don't know if you didn't realize how close the race was with Nixon. Well, there were dead people in Detroit, in your town, in Chicago, both, that voted 20 times and they were dead. So they got enough polls. He won by a squeaker. It was a very close race. He becomes president. And as soon as he becomes president, his father tells him, make your brother attorney general. Bobby became attorney general and Joe said, put all my good friends in jail, meaning Giancana, mafia, everybody, went after everybody. Then he turned around and he said to him, those people down in Texas, those oil guys, they're making a tremendous amount of money on a subject called surplus oil. They're not paying any tax on it. And you need to float a tax on their surplus oil business. So that tax cost them two to $300 million a year. I think that didn't make them a little bit pissed off. The fact that Joe Kennedy was underwriting Castro and putting money into Cuba was not a happy puppy. That's why the Bay of Pigs happened and other missile deal, the whole nine yards. So you had a lot of people very, very angry. But nobody was angrier than the bankers of Geneva because of the crash of 29. That made some people extremely angry, wealthy people. Because in 1926, like I said, Kennedy was under thumb to Chicago. They sent him out to Hollywood because they controlled the film industry through the Cinematographers Union. And they had him put together a distribution deal for RKO. So in 1926, he the Hamilton Club in Illinois was powerful, like the New York Athletic Club for New York, a political stronghold. And they sat Joe down and they said, we want you to do something for us. And they did a short sell against Pathé Newsreel and they stole $5 million in broad daylight and no one ever saw it. So they said, wow, you know, that's pretty clever. You can do what we really want to do. And they formed a short sell that was aimed at 30 companies in Europe. The reason they did it was because we, after World War I, we became a war-bearing country. We started manufacturing war goods and uh, we were taking jobs away from Europe. That's where all the war materials and stuff were made prior to. Not only that, but Europe was a little bit disgusted that we weren't paying back as much as we should because they underwrote this country. In the very beginning, the first bank that was ever put in America, only a million dollars came from America, 10 million came from Europe. And every year thereafter, Europe supplied money. And still today, 31 or 32 percent of the outside funding comes through London via Geneva. So there were 30 companies that were aimed at, and Joe Kennedy, after he did his little trick with Pathé, they said to him, "Want you to structure this thing. So he put this short sell aimed at these companies. One of the companies was a company owned by Blackjack Bovier and his father and his uncle. That was Jackie Kennedy's father. Jackie Kennedy's father was Blackjack Bovier, and they went bankrupt, and it was a Rothschild company that they, that they ran. So a lot of people were very angry. Short sell worked. They all made a lot of money and they took a day off that they were going to wait and come back and finish it. And in the interim, the country panicked and the crash happened. They didn't do it to deliberately make the crash. It just was a remnant of what they did. They overdid the short sell. You understand? Mm -hmm. so when the crash ended in 30, Roosevelt said to Joe Kennedy, boy, you did a great job, kid. You know what? We're going to make you head of the SEC because they knew Europe had to reinvest back in the country to get their money back, but they wanted to do it under different rules. And Joe Kennedy wrote the rules that they wanted to have done. Europe reinvested in the country, and but they were not happy puppies at all. Not at all. And uh, they never forgot it.
and they were part of the contribution of all the people who were angry. It gave them a clear vein of how to do something. And there was young Joe Kennedy was the first person that his father wanted to be president of the United States. And he was a tremendous pilot and he was mustering out of the service. He was like 10 days away from leaving Europe to come home. And they had devised a plane that was going to be like a kamikaze plane and fly it into the munition factories of Germany to end the war. And uh, they talked Joe Kennedy into test piloting this plane. And when he went up to test pilot, the plane blew up and he was dead. And a week later, they scrapped the whole thing. Hmm. Joe Kennedy had already been thrown out of England. When he went to Europe, he got together with the Shah of Iran. They put a bank together. They were lending money to Hitler. Hitler came back to the same crew. They added to Khashoggi. They were selling weapons. And he didn't think he was doing anything wrong because America wasn't in the war yet. But England said, wait a minute, you're contributing to our enemy. And they threw him out. And nobody knew why he came home because there was no television. The radio stations were owned by the Murchison family. The papers from the East Coast were owned by the Gore family in Indiana. And he was already in bed with Air Randolph Hearst on the West Coast. So no one ever printed any stories as to why Joe Kennedy left England. He just came home as Ambassador Joe Kennedy. Started to parlay what he was going to do to make his son president. And then when the happened, tragedy happened, and he said, well, we're going to make Jack president. And he went to Chicago, sat down to try and reassure that his second son wouldn't die. You know, and then they, Bobby, they croaked and they, and they disgraced Teddy with the projecting thing. With letting that girl die. They said another Kennedy would never cross the White House doors again, and they never did. And if you ever look up history, if you go in the library, you'll find the answers to what we just talked about. They're all there. There's nobody ever sees them. They were never printed right. Kennedy dynasty, the, the whole thing about the Camelot thing was horseshit. Jack and, and, and Jackie, Jackie was groomed to marry Jack Kennedy because her mother wanted her money back. They both carried on in their marriage so badly that Joe Kennedy because he knew Jack was a senator and he knew he was going to go for president. He gave Jackie $10 million to stay in the marriage. That's public knowledge. He gave her $10 million to stay in the marriage to make this Camelot appearance. They were the happiest Catholic family and had the first Catholic president and all this other. You know, truth of the matter, the, the things that happened, happened. And, uh, and everything was uh, was swept under the bridge, man. You know, you, when, when, the, when the Kennedy gets killed and Jack Ruby, I mean, Oswald was a total patsy. Lee Harvey Oswald was his mother was uh, was a prostitute. She was hooked up with a guy in New Orleans who worked for Carlos Marcellus. Lee Harvey Oswald thought he was going to be a big time spy. He worked for naval intelligence when he was a kid. They had it was not polite to be gay in the military. So they had clubs in Dallas and New Orleans and all these service guys used to go there and they were gay clubs. And Oswald was there with a microphone on his steel, and he would talk to all these captain on up, military echelon, and, and they were blackmailing them all. He thought he was going to become this great spy, so this guy, George the Mornchild, and a guy named Zabruder, were two white Russians that came into New York in the garment district. Meyer Lansky gave him a quarter of a million, sent him to Dallas, Texas. They set up shop in Texas, and the Mornchild used to date Jackie Kennedy's sister, I mean, Jackie Kennedy's aunt. She used to call him Uncle George when she was a kid. He taught Oswald Russian. He introduced Oswald to the KGB woman that he married. Oswald went to Russia, and because he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and they bugged every apartment he was in, they wound up throwing him out because he was a he had a big mouth. So they threw him out, and he was a no-show. He came home, he was a boom, he was a bust out. So they groomed him for what happened at Dealey Plaza. First of all, he wasn't even in the window when the shots were fired at Dealey Plaza. And the whole one bullet theory is total rubbish. If you know anything about guns at all, to take a mail-ordered rifle and you're going to shoot a shot of a 1,000 feet or better, and you have to take the variables in. The wind there, the wind in Dealey Plaza was terrible. You had a, a car that was moving on a decline. You had the wind, the trees, the signs, and you have a guy supposedly... When a sharpshooter is taking a shot of that nature, he has to take in all the variables. He has to arrest his heart down below 60 because your pulse is in your finger. And to take three shots in 28 seconds with a mail-order gun, forget about it. Ain't never happened with any accuracy. And, and you're shooting from that window, and the car had already been past the window. So if the shot, the one bullet theory was true, that means it would have went in the back of Kennedy's head. 
not the first shot that hit Kennedy, hit him in the throat where he grabbed his throat, fell down on top of Conley. Second shot hit him in the back, lower back that no one talked about for 10 years. And then the third shot, the driver just turned around and took it. And you see Kennedy fly backwards, the back of his head blew out. And Greer was driving his car and on his deathbed, he, he attested to that, that he took that shot. This is a Bruder footage that you've seen, had eight frames missing that later came into vision that showed the driver taking the shot. And people say, well, how come somebody didn't see this or that? Well, it all happened in 28 seconds. You had 13 shots fired that day. And then people were scrambling all over the place. You understand? Yeah, sorry. My silence is shocking on. Uh, <laughs> but it, so it's, so it's you, fascinating. Just, you're talking about the first shot came from a cauldron in the side of the street. And the cauldron went from the river to the street, and it was big enough for me to walk down. And today, it's all cemented in. The year after it happened, they cemented that in. It took him six months to reroute down Dealey Plaza, his visit. Four people, including Adlai Stevenson, went to Bobby and said, don't let your brother go to Dallas. The animosity is terrible. Adlai Stevenson said they were spitting at me in Houston. And here you got the president in an open car in front of a building with people with the windows open walking around. You think the Secret Service will allow anything like that? That's insanity. You understand? Oh, yeah. All the variables that happened that day were just phenomenal. And it was all brushed under the under the carpet. The Warren Commission was totally bullshit. The one-bullet theory was bullshit. There's no way it was a one-bullet tale. And the autopsy that was done was done by interns. Then they flew them up to Washington where real people did an autopsy. And that wasn't divulged for five years until afterwards, and they proved that he had been shot in the throat, and he was, they, they had packed a piece of skin up over his face, and Dallas took pictures to say, that, oh, no, he was shot from behind. What was he shot from? How, do you, how does the back of your head blow out? And Lee Harvey right. Oswald wasn't even in the building. There was a jail right across from the building, prisoners looking straight at the window, and there were two dark-complected guys who were Cubans and one white guy in the window. And it wasn't Oswald. The whole thing was such a put-together conspiracy. And every 10 years, more of it comes out. And the truth comes out slower and slower. Is the full truth in the book or pieces of it? Or Yeah. I don't know if you ever watched how Ruby shot Oswald. You ever saw that footage? No, I think I have, yeah. Okay. Well, Ruby, first of all, they let him under that, in that building with a gun. Come on. And the president and the, and the killer of the president is going to be bled out by police. And when they let him out of the room, the police that was stood next to him stepped away from him like he knew Ruby was coming to take a shot. And the other part is that here they had the guy who killed the president of the United States. There was not one set of documents on questioning of him. There were no tape recordings, nothing. And this guy supposedly killed the president because they knew he was going to die. It's, it's an incredible cover up. It's, it's amazing. It, oh, yeah, yeah. It's just amazing to me. Where was Oliver Stone when he was making his film? What was he missing? Well, yeah. the people do what they're told to do. Where's Hollywood, period? I mean, they just did a movie called The Irishman. You seen that? Yes, I saw all 17 hours of The Irishman. I knew Frank Sheeran very well. Frank Sheeran was a driver of Hoffa. He never killed Hoffa, and he never killed Joey Gallo. Did he ever kill people? Yes, he did. He killed a few. He was a hitter. Killed a couple people. Then he wrote a book about painting houses. And that was about him killing people. But he did not kill Hoffa and he did not kill Joey Gallo. There are stories that Hollywood never had answers to, so they just made up their own. Didn't Frank Sheeran's lawyer write the Paint the House book that the movie's based on and the lawyer claims he killed you're Hoffa? About, you're talking about Russell Buffalino's nephew, Billy, and he was Hoffa's lawyer. And Russell... Sheeran worked for Russell. Russell, I knew Russell well. Russell of Western Pennsylvania, he was very politically connected with Washington. And if Russell ever saw that movie, he'd turn over in his grave. You know, they just, Hollywood took liberties and did what they wanted to do. Like I said, I knew Sheeran very well. I know damn right well he didn't kill Hoffa. That never happened. Do you know where Hoffa is? Because, you know, I'm from Detroit, so that's a big deal for us here. Machis Red Fox is where he was last seen. That's they will never few miles from my house. They will never ever find Jimmy Hoffa. And he's not buried anywhere, I'll tell you that right now. And the other part is that the I mean, there was a guy from Detroit. This is a funny story. There was a guy from Detroit doing time. And his father lived right outside of Detroit, out by three miles. And he had a little gentleman's farm out there. The kid did all the work, you know, with, with his father couldn't do the tilling of the farm. So <laughs> She had told the FBI, he said, uh, 
listen, you want to know where Hop is buried at? And he told him, I gave him this piece of land. And they went and dug up that guy, his father's whole farm. <laughs> it turned all the ground over. They never found anything because there was nothing there to find. But his father's farm got dug up. <laughs> <laughs> By the FBI. There's some brilliance there. Jimmy, I love Jimmy. I knew Jimmy well. Jimmy was an amazing individual. He never would do any, he wouldn't ask you to do whatever he couldn't do himself. And uh, Jimmy's Jimmy's problem was he didn't listen to people when, when all this stuff came down. And uh, he thought he was going to go to jail for 30 days or 60 days and he'd be out. You know, and if you remember, uh, you don't know, you not think you're too young. The, the day he went to jail, every trucker lined up all the way up to Lewisburg, tooting their horns at him when he went by. He was on the phone with some people from Boston right before he went in, into jail. And they said, you know, Jimmy, you don't have to go to jail. The Teamsters will all walk off their jobs. And in this country already made a transition from rail to truck. It would have paralyzed the country. And Hoffa said, nah, man, they, they think I did the crime. I'll do the time. But the whole thing was ludicrous to accuse him of taking $8,000 from a pension fund that he created. There was no pension fund until Hoppe put it there. And to accuse him of taking $8,000 to fix his house. Let me tell you something. There were contractors who would have fixed this house for nothing. Jimmy Hoffa was loved by a lot of people, especially union people. You understand? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I believe it. That's the one thing I that's the one thing I did get out of the Irishman. He backed the wrong president. And that's why he went to jail. And but they made him a deal while he was in jail. When he came home, he was not supposed to touch the union for X amount of years. And he walked right in the office and threw Fitzsimmons out. Fitzsimmons was already in the thumb because they had blown up his kid's car. It scared the shit out of him. So the government, the door, he opened the door for the government to come into the Teamsters. And when Jimmy came home, he thought he was taking his union back. And he threw Fitzsimmons out of his office and he told him, I'm taking my unit. Jimmy, you can't do You get us all locked up. You, you signed papers. You can't do that. And he got on the phone. He made a phone call to New York. And he talked to a certain person in New York. And he said, I want my union back. And they said, Jimmy, take your time. Everything will be worked out. We'll fix everything. Don't worry about it. I don't want to hear that bullshit. I want my union. I want it now. That was his attitude. I want this and I want it now. When you people wanted money from me, from my pension fund, I never said no. But every dime they ever he ever lent them for Caesar's Palace or anything else that they funded, they paid back every single dime of it. There were no outstanding debts to the mafia. You understand? Mm-hmm. And without certain people, he would have never risen to where he rose to. So, But he just lost it. He said, I, I want my union back. I want it back now. But I kept, and they kept telling him, Jimmy, you're on the phone. Give it time, it'll all work out. And he made a statement. That was the last statement he ever made to them. I'll go to the press. He hung the phone up. And that was the end of Hoffa. And I loved Jimmy. Jimmy was a good guy. I liked him a lot. He was a man's man. And it's really sad that it ended that way. And you do know where he's buried or you don't? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly where he's at. Never will be. He's not buried anywhere. I'll tell you that right now. You'll never find him. And then thank God his son's doing I think his son took the teamsters back over now. He's a good kid. He'll do well with it. Jack, you're an amazingly fascinating person. Really are. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all those stories with me. I, I'm i going to get the book. I'm going to read the book. I you can't wait to read it. it. Yeah, you And then you're, you're writing more, right? You're writing yeah, more. we got another book coming out. Sounds great. I look forward to that. And then the website again for the Family Legacy book? FamilyLegacyTheNovel.com. And that takes you right to Amazon. Awesome. Jack, thank you so much for spending all this time. It's my pleasure, man. Hope your audience enjoys it. I think they will. I think they definitely will. Thank you again. All right. How amazing was that? Jack O'Halloran, ladies and gentlemen, what a fascinating person he is. So many amazing stories from the set of Superman 1 and 2. And did you realize when you started listening to an episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin show, you'd totally find out everything behind the JFK assassination? Probably not, but here we are. You're welcome. And I don't care what Jack says. I'm going to keep looking for Jimmy Hoffa. He's somewhere. He's got to be somewhere. All right. Well, definitely check out Jack O'Halloran's book, Family Legacy, and take some time to relive the original Superman 1 and 2. You will believe a man can fly. Well, here we are nearing the end of episode 51. 
You know what that means as we near the end. That means it's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtag roundup games on Twitter. That's right. Hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup and download the free hashtag roundup app at the Apple Store or Google Play. And you can tweet along with us all day, every day. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on an episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. This week's hashtag. Keeping in theme with Jack O'Halloran and supervillain Non from Superman. Hashtag signs your neighbor is a supervillain. This is both fun and informative because you need to know who you're living with. This is brought to you by Sci-Fi Tags, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup. Are you ready? Here we go. Hashtag signs your neighbor is a supervillain. You keep finding your neighbor's copy of World Domination Monthly in your mailbox. Your neighbor keeps telling you how he gave up drinking for good and now drinks for evil. Their pool is full of sharks with laser beams on their head. These are some clear signs your neighbor is a supervillain. There's a sign in their yard that says, Beware of Sentinels. Your neighbor's name is Karen and she vacuums her driveway at 6 a.m. Oh, Karen sounds like one of the worst supervillains ever. Your neighbor has a huge kryptonite stockpile, but won't tell you why. Your neighbor's always telling you their plans. Then stop inviting them over for dinner. Your neighbor secretly turns out to be your dad all along. (laughs) Oh no, I am your father. Then why aren't you paying my rent? Hashtag signs your neighbor is a super villain. Your neighbor is constantly wearing a lab coat and always surrounded by henchmen. And of course, the clearest giveaway that your neighbor is a super villain they have a roommate exactly one-eighth their size. Oh! And those are some hashtag signs your neighbor is a supervillain. All the tweets that I read will be retweeted at Chef Dewaskin Show on Twitter and listed in the show notes. Go give them some love, retweet them. Can't believe we're at the end of yet another episode. Episode 51 has come and gone. I want to thank again my amazing guest, Jack O'Halloran, for stopping by. I want to thank all of you for stopping by week after week. Can't thank you enough. Means the world to me. And I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.